This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed and digital journalist Hamish Penman, and we are back from Glasgow, back from all energy, and uh, we're about ready to collapse at the end of it, I think. How did you find it, Hamish? Yeah, it was hectic. Uh, it was enjoyable, but it was incredibly hectic. It felt like we were chasing our tails for two days, running around the show floor, speaking to everyone and anyone, but... I had an enjoyable couple of days and some good networking in the evenings, I think. Good networking. That is a good way of describing getting really drunk with business associates. Uh, <laughs> how about you? And, of course, turning out some top-quality podcasts. Top-quality pods, absolutely. Been to any decent conferences, Ed, or away anywhere fun soon? I am, I am indeed off off for the weekend to the Netherlands. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go and uh, knock on Shell's door, see how they are. Uh, <laughs> you know, just... Uh, Catch up. A cheeky, a cheeky uh, weekend to the Netherlands ahead of Shell's AG- AGM. Coincidence? Just, uh, know, yes, actually. But I think not. <laughs> uh, this is the kind of lightning conference rapport you just don't get on the other podcasts. Um, so let's get on to the business of the of the week. Um, so I want to start this time with CCS, the the Carbon Storage Licensing Round Awards, the first ever. And offers have been made this week by the North Sea Transition Authority to companies to store. CO2 emissions under the North Sea and depleted gas fields. Um, Really critical in transforming the region for carbon storage and helping to achieve net zero targets. So um, a little bit about the round itself. Combined areas on offer the size of Yorkshire um, and the areas that are on offer kind of off of uh, regions like Aberdeen, Teesside, Liverpool, Lincolnshire in the North Sea. Uh, In some cases, we could see carbon being injected into these stores in as little as six years. Um, There's quite a lot to dig into in terms of the timelines, and perhaps we can do that in a minute. Um, But potentially 30 million tonnes of CO2 storage per year, which the NSTA says equates to 10% of UK emissions based on 2021 figures, which were 341.5 million tonnes of CO2 emitted, according to them. Thanks for asking. And uh, 12 companies have received offers, 20 licences in total, 12,000 square kilometres. This is huge and really quite important for the transformation that we're hoping to see in the North Sea. However... For those of you that have been doing this a bit, a little bit too long, like myself, uh, you might remember in your more typical, more traditional oil and gas licensing rounds, um, you'd get the maps, you'd get the names of the awardees, the works, all kind of packaged up and disclosed on the day. Uh, and certainly that was the case in 2018, 2019, when we last had a licensing round. So I was a bit surprised yesterday when the awards came out and the names and maps were nowhere to be seen. How dare they, I said to myself. Um, but some companies less than half of them that have been uh, awarded have come forward publicly and said they've received offers. Um, As we record, that's Perenco, Neptune, Enquest and Spirit Energy. There's a couple of bits of info on the losers too, but ultimately less than half of these 12 winners have come forward and we would expect the the full list to be published in the coming weeks as offers are accepted. There are strong rumours as to some others, including uh, majors, but unconfirmed as we record. So, um, yeah, at, at the risk of treading the very thin line between analysis and speculation, which uh, this podcast t- tends to do quite often, if we're being honest, um, I wanted to establish why is it these awards haven't been announced. Um, the NSTA will tell you uh, commercial considerations and the fact that 
uh, offers do not necessarily mean awards. Um, and that's it in a nutshell. It's possible that companies will see these offers based on their bids and decide, well, thank you very much, but no thank you. And presumably some of these firms that are still kind of in the shadows, if you like, are reviewing what's on the table before they give an answer. So why or why would they say no if they applied for space in the first place? Um, there's a few reasons, it seems. Um, first is consolidation. We've seen recently Shell exiting the Northern Endurance CCS scheme in Teesside to focus just on Acorn in Aberdeenshire as regards UK CCS. Meanwhile, there are greater incentives to carry out this kind of work tax-wise in the United States versus the UK. Uh, And I spoke to Stuart Hazeldine of the Scottish CCS group yesterday. He told me that the spread betting of these firms on CCS with plenty of options, that's effectively being refined now. It's quite possible that a company might have gotten offers for three areas. Maybe they only want to take one now in the UK, given that optionality. That's possibility one. Door number two, you've got the bidding itself, uh, told off record by someone in the industry yesterday that you might have bid for a certain area, but there was a lot of competition in that area, let's say. So the NSTA decides to split that area up and makes an offer for a portion of what you bid for. So you're now having to share that space and resource, and you're considering that. Is it a different business proposition? And let's not forget our old friend, the windfall tax. The round opened to applications in June. The windfall tax was increased some months later in November. Bids were quite possibly made in the intervening period. And then the tax goes up, and companies may decide, well, actually, guys, I think this is a different ballgame now, so no thank you. And we have had Companies like Harbour Energy, a big investor in CCS in the UK, warning pre-November that a hike in the windfall tax could undermine their investments in CCS in the UK. So that's it. Um, When will we know the successful bids in coming weeks as the offers are accepted? Um, I felt it was a bit of a damp squib yesterday. We wanted the winners and what arrived was a general announcement and we've been having to scramble to try to find out uh, who's been been, uh, winning these or getting offers in place. Quite a lot of digest there. I just want to talk a little bit about timings and that as well. But the thought that came to my mind yesterday about the disclosure stuff, you know, if the NSTA isn't disclosing the CCS winners, what's going to happen for the upcoming oil and gas licensing round awards? Are they going to disclose those? They certainly have in the past. Um, but if they don't, I mean, is that going to be... In, I mean, how are MPs, how are the climate lobby going to react to that if, you know, said, oh, we've offered these awards, but we've not, um, we're not disclosing who to these oil companies? Um, I just I think that's that's an interesting proposition. I don't know. I've not asked them this question, so maybe a bit unfair to bring it up. Um, but yeah, I'd be interested in finding out um, what their plan is there because I don't I don't think the non-disclosure is going to play um, if that's if that's the strategy. I would be very surprised if they didn't announce the uh, specific companies who won in the licensing round, given there's a precedent there that they have in the past. Um, it was quite odd that the winners of the CCS round weren't announced. And certainly I wasn't working up the results. Um, but when the announcement came through, that was kind of the first thing I noticed was the lack of detail scrolling to the bottom where you, you might think it was attached as a notes to editor or something, but there was just nothing to go on, um, which was odds. Um, I suppose maybe not to let that take away from what is a big announcement and a, a big step on the road towards the the UK's CCS future um but I don't think it I mean CCS is seen by the climate lobby as this as as greenwashing something that is not needed for net zero um despite kind of reports to the contrary but I don't think the not naming of um winners will help that perception and 
it probably is not aided either by the fact that those that have announced Perenko Spirit Enquest are all North Sea oil producers. Um, I would be interested to know if there are any companies within that who are not oil and gas producers. Um, it's potentially unlikely, but yeah, it would, would have been nice to see a full roundup of, of who's who. Yeah, no, d- definitely. Um, in- interesting about the, the net zeros kind of side of it. Um, you know, I think if we're doing CCS in you know, 50 years time, then maybe maybe something's gone wrong. But it, it does seem that right now, if we want to get to net zero by 2050, they need to pull all the levers available. And, and you know, they're talking about um, getting to these policy milestones, decarbonizing electricity by 2035. And we're talking about carbon injection here for some of these projects within a decade or, um, you know, within six years. And I'm just kind of thinking, you know, if you want to get to decarbonized electricity system in the UK by 2035, that means what? All gas-fired power stations need to have CCS linked to them well in advance of that? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't really know how we how we square that circle without CCS and indeed without um, without uh, with without having that technology available to us. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Certainly, we'll get the awards in the coming weeks. But um, yeah, I think we'll we'll leave CCS there and head on over to Nigeria next for Africa's largest refinery. After delays, could it finally be ready to go? I'm Andrew Dykes, content editor at Energy Voice and host of the Megawatt Hour, a podcast box set series brought to you by Energy Voice in paid partnership with BDO. This series sees us examine the state of energy storage technologies and their wide-ranging effects on energy markets. So far over the course of our series, we've looked a lot at the big picture. Grid-scale batteries, seasonal storage, and the policy and investment landscape underpinning major developments across the country. In our latest episode, we're drilling right down to the small scale to focus on where we're most likely to interact with storage technology in our daily lives, in our homes. As home energy systems become increasingly smarter, storage is set to play a greater role in how we use and consume energy, and will hopefully not only help us use greater amounts of renewables, but may even save us some money. So join me, my roster of BDO co-hosts, and a range of diverse guests from across the energy and climate sector to learn more. Look for the Megawatt Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or in your regular Energy Voice out loud feed, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Ed, uh, bring us up to speed in this refinery, and, well, how likely or not is a, is a swift startup? Right, so yeah, so uh, come Monday, uh, President Buhari of Nigeria is one of his sort of uh, final acts before handing over the, uh, the top job to, uh, to the next guy, is, uh, is, is, is heading to uh, Dangote Refinery, um, which is sort of near Lagos with the plan of either inaugurating it or commissioning it. It's, it's slightly unclear. Mm. <laughs> um, the one, well, you know, somebody, somebody I spoke to said it was definitely an inauguration. So it was more like turn up, you know, cut a ribbon, maybe put a plaque up, um, you know, do some speeches, shake some hands and then go home. Other people have said it's commissioning. It's they're actually going to start turning this this massive refinery on. It's 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 slightly unclear. The, the whole thing has been you know delayed for some time, and obviously any sort of startup process is going to be similarly challenging. So, it's a six hundred and fifty thousand barrel per day refinery. Um, initially, it was. I think the initial plan was that it was going to start up in twenty sixteen. Mm. It's not 2016 now, Alistair. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, time has passed. Um, 
it was initially going to cost something like nine billion dollars. It's probably going to cost about twenty billion dollars. Um, and once this, you know, there's this obviously there are kind of these questions around around you know the kind of commissioning process, right? Once you've been working on such a project for such a long time, and you know things involved in the refinery process are involved in you know exposed to weather. Um, Will they still work as 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 planned? So there there is there's a there's a big question mark. Is it telling on a Monday? Which would be great. Um, if it is, uh, a, a guy from Wood Mackenzie was saying, you know, best case scenario, three to four months of turning on. Um, but uh, the kind of the the outside case um, might take two years. Um, so clearly, there is still a lot of uncertainty around around Nigeria. I think there's there's also a lot to be said about the the impact that it will have on Nigeria once it's actually actually uh, sort of up and running. So obviously, given that sort of world scale size, it's it's going to really change how Nigeria consumes products. So Nigeria has historically been reliant on on imports, primarily coming from 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 Europe, and and over the last kind of year or so, quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of Russian uh, fuel flowing into Nigeria. Once Dangote's up and running, that you know, may well change. Obviously, that those 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 products can then go to kind of the domestic market, but also a lot of Nigerian crude will be going into that refinery. So Nigeria, you know, produces about one point one million barrels per day at the moment. If six hundred fifty thousand barrels per day is going into the Dangote refinery, that suddenly really changes the um, the outlook for, uh, for 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 exports. And obviously, there are sort of knock on questions around flows into the Atlantic Basin. So. It's all change, but we're not quite sure when. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that that cost overrun figure you mentioned there. Uh, sorry, that that eleven billion dollars in excess of original targets, if I'm not mistaken. I mean that seems uh, that in mind. I can understand why people would have a degree of skepticism about getting this thing going. Um, if you were a betting man, Ed, I know you're not, of course. But, <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, months or years, do you think, or? Or indeed days, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I suspect uh, we, we, we probably won't see products coming out of it until the end of the year, mm. would be my feeling. Okay. Um, and obviously, as, uh, as, as Wood Mackenzie said, clearly the, the, the way in which it starts up and um, the processes involved, right? Are they, to what extent are they being kind of, you know, scrupulous and meticulous in, you know, checking all, the, all that equipment, flushing it all out, making it ready for... For obviously this 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 major kind of processing, so there are some yeah. It's it's uh, if I was a betting man, I would say that Nigeria's uh, refined market outlook is not going to change in the short term. But I think you know clearly there is a, a massive political interest in 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 changing it up because I mean so NNPC the the Nigerian oil company has essentially uh, spent a you know a substantial amount of its revenues over the last uh, year or so on uh, you know which it earns from oil sales just into into buying products uh, on the international market and then selling it domestically that's not a sustainable uh, process for a country with a with a, with a debt load as, as high as nigeria's so they've, they've got to change it up quite whether this is this is this is the, the thing that's going to change it it's slightly unclear. There are there are a couple of other refineries that they're also uh, hoping to, to to repair and, and and bring back online. So Nigeria's got four refineries existing. None work 
really at all. Um, <laughs> and there's, there's been a long-running saga around the spending on turnaround maintenance uh, and, and the extent to which, historically, that has essentially made no difference to their uh, utilization. They've brought in international contractors. Maybe this time is different. I mean, so th- th- there is a point where, you know, kind of best-case scenario, you could see Nigeria having something like a million barrels per day of refining capacity. I don't know whether those four refineries, you know, that that are already, you know, ostensibly running and have been around for years, can they be repaired to the extent that they need to be? Will they be able to 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 reach those targets? Will they will they actually ever restart? I mean, there's a lot of questions, and clearly a lot of a uh, lot of political interest as well. And if you're if if you're somebody going to this um, ribbon cutting ceremony on on Monday, I mean, you, you said it's probably going to be a plaque opening and that. I mean, it's. False advertising doesn't seem to quite cut it if it's not actually starting up the thing. Um, I, I, I wonder if I could get your thoughts there. And then broadly, you've already kind of touched on it, Ed, um, but in terms of that wider Atlantic Basin trade, I mean, what do you think are going to be the, the major kind of immediate uh, noticeable changes once once this finally does get going? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the thing on, on Monday, I think it's clearly a kind of a, a need for kind of political kind of a demonstration, right? So Buhari has been in power for two terms. He's, he's, he's handing over to, uh, to you know, uh, the, the, the presidency staying in the same party. So he the, there is a sense where, you know, he, there's a sort of a demonstration needed of things that he's achieved. And I think Overall, people seem pretty pessimistic about um, how things have changed in, in, in Nigeria over the last two presidential terms. So I think this point where you're saying, you know, opening this massive refinery, clearly changing sort of, you know, that sort of domestic product supply situation has a really sort of important impact, you know, in terms of sort of saying, this is my legacy, right? Mm. This is what I've achieved in, 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 my, in my time in office. I mean, you know, so I, th- I think there, there is a, a, an extent of kind of political manoeuvring kind of getting it in the week before he uh, before he, he, he hands over the keys to the presidential villa. Ah. <laughs> I mean, so I, I think that that's that's the need. I mean, so, so in, and in terms of sort of the Atlantic Basin, I think um, essentially, you know, obviously there's kind of uncertainty around timing. But if 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 Nigeria's crudes no longer kind of flow into the Atlantic Basin in the way they have been. Those primarily, there's, there's a lot that kind of goes into Europe at the moment. So um, there's a question around sort of European refineries, how they will need to change. Uh, Nigerian crews are kind of light and sweet, so it's quite good for kind of gasoline production. So reducing those flows into Europe and obviously also kind of reducing the amount of products that they take from refineries in Europe. So there's going to be some quite interesting times ahead for, uh, for 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 European facilities. I think the the impression is that the the sort of closest sort of substitute that's kind of ready to hand is probably uh, U.S. shale. So expect to see more uh, oil flowing across the Atlantic from the U.S. in the same way that we've seen a, a massive increase in in LNG over the last uh, couple of years. A man obsessed with his legacy. Well, we can all we can all relate <laughs> to that. Can't we? Anyway, uh, well, thanks, Ed. Um, now, from uh, building a refinery to building a factory, with a little help from our friends, it's Hamish after this. The UK government has set out its overarching plan to get the country to net zero. But what are the next steps we should be taking along the way? In the fifth episode of Net Zero Nudge, Energy Voice, in association with EY, drills into some of the questions around energy storage. As renewable energy becomes an increasingly important share of the grid, and we dial down hydrocarbons such as gas and coal, balancing out the peaks and troughs of generation and demand will be essential. 
In this episode, James Nicholson, partner at EY Parthenon, and Alex Okineda, CEO and founder of Gore Street Capital, talk over some of the opportunities and challenges around energy storage, where we've been, where we are now, and where we're going. That's Net Zero Nudge, episode five on energy storage, out now. Okay, Hamish, uh, plenty in the news this week on the mooted factory from uh, Sumitomo, but uh, you got an interesting angle on how it all came about. Indeed, the factory itself's got a lot of uh, interest from various media outlets uh, in the last, well, I think it was announced end of April towards, but it's um, it's kind of hit the news cycle again this week with announcement of a, a big investment in it. But yeah, this angle, I mean, it came off the back of All Energy, which you mentioned at the start. Uh, we were down in good numbers in, in Glasgow, um, and I'm sure we can touch on that in a minute, but um, as it happened, SSE Renewables were having their uh, brand launch for the Ostian Wind Farm on the Thursday, uh, the day that All Energy came to a close, so I happened to be down in Glasgow for it and, and headed, a lo- headed along. Um, so their Ostian Wind Farm, just to kind of recap, uh, a floating wind project, they won it in Scotland um, alongside partners, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners and Japanese firm Marubeni. Uh, good brand launch, lots of ample bottles of um, Ossian beer, which was very nice, a favourite of mine. Ooh. Yeah, it was good. Lovely. Uh, I think that's named after like a Scottish like legendary figure. I don't I don't know the... Oh. I read it on the back of the beer can one time. You've hold your horses. We'll come on that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> ruining my segment. Right, okay. On you go. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah, so l- lots of bottles of beer, lots of speeches um, from company representatives, Um from my stance, the the pick of the bunch was uh, Tomoki Nishino, who is the head of uh, or the chief executive of um, Marabeni Europower. So he spoke about the links between Japan and Scotland, and he had with him what looked like a pretty ancient copy of the poems of Ossian, um, from which the wind farm takes its name. Ah. Takes its name, like you said, the the epic um, writings of kind of Scotland's answer to Beowulf. It seems. Um, but yeah, he had this copy of the book that a member of a Marabeni, I think, um, had found in a bookshop in Tokyo, and he was using that to highlight the, the the relationship between Scotland and Japan. So that was quite a nice symbol in and of itself. Um, and he did speak really openly about what Marabeni wanted to do in Scotland to deliver this this floating wind project. He delivered a kind of rallying cry for for those in the room, of which there were supply chain companies, ports to to help them to do so, um, and it was met with a lot of applause obviously so got the chance to sit down with Tomoki as well as um, Alan Hanna from from uh, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners and Brian McFarlane from SSC Renewables just after their speeches uh, good interesting chat a lot about the challenges um, as well as the opportunities about offshore wind in Scotland um, a lot about grid capacity um, and kind of port capacity which we was like a key themes running through all energy as well. Um, but the kind of notable bit was, was Tomoki specifically speaking about what Marabeni can bring to Scotland as an Asian company and its connections and network of Asian companies looking for, for opportunities overseas. Um, specifically, he revealed that Marabeni has been lobbying for the last three years for Sumitomo to open a cable manufacturing facility here in Scotland. Now, those who have been keeping up with their with their energy voice or, or political news in general, I suppose, will know that Sumitomo is now planning to open a cable facility in the Highlands. It's committed two hundred million pounds of its cash to do so. It's a really big win, I think, for well, for Scotland, but for the Highlands specifically. It's going to create one hundred and fifty or so green jobs. Um, and and Tomoki was kind of quite clear he was 
saying when Marabeni embarks on any project, it says what can it bring to it. Um, so he highlighted the Asian connection to Somitomo. Um, also, yeah, they've been pushing for three years. He called it a job well done that they've now pledged to do so. Um, but he said it doesn't want to stop there. He, he, he says that he, Marabeni is speaking with multiple other supply chain companies that like to invest in things like ports and not just firms in Japan, but, but Asia more widely. Um, he said that some of them were in the room um, and that they're very kind of conscious to use their networks to, to strengthen and bring value to, to wherever it is that they set up shop. Um, so it's a, I mean, the kind of Scotland process has got quite a, a tough rap because there are so many multinational companies involved in it. There's this view that perhaps Scotland has sold off its, its offshore winds potential um, to the highest bidder. I can understand those concerns, but I would say this is a good example of why multinationals in Scotland um, can deliver significant value because they have those networks and are able to convince people to to follow them wherever they go. And yeah, it was left feeling rather upbeat after the the whole thing, which is odd for somebody that is a professional cynic. <laughs> Maybe it's all that Aussian beer. <laughs> yeah, that might have been it. Um, uh, um, so, I mean, Hamish, they, they haven't said, um, as far as I know, or perhaps they have, where about exactly in the Highlands this would be. Um, I, again, we're kind of getting into the area of speculation, but clearly there's a, a lot going on around Nig in that kind of space. And you might you might argue just across the water, Ardisier as well. Any Any thoughts or any information around that at this stage? No, it's still early days, and, and they haven't said specifically, um, as we're all betting men this morning, if I was a betting man, I would hazard a guess that there's there's going to be a green free port um, around uh, Nig and Cromarty pretty soon. I would hazard a guess that it might well be looking to tap into the, the economic uh, benefits uh, encompassed by that. Um, it would also make sense, given that, that Nig and, and kind of Cromarty more widely has history as um, certainly a, a, a kind of assembly and assembly base for offshore wind. It's done Murray West and it's done Sea Green, um, and there's big plans there to to expand it further um, to kind of get manufacturing capacity there as well. So I would say that would probably be the best bets. Um, but I mean, if, if if it comes back in a couple of years and it's not there. I'll look very silly. <laughs> I guess that one of the questions that we might raise is playing the devil's advocate to the, the overseas investment side. Uh, and I, I totally take your arguments um, about what Sumitomo can bring. Um, you know, so, someone may point out that there is a vast um, oil and gas subsea supply chain in Aberdeen that hasn't decided to make this investment. Obviously, we've got Global Energy Group in, in NIG already, and that is a, a, a Scottish kind of UK company that's that's doing well there. Um, I think it's a fair question about why why is it that we need to look so much overseas for this kind of thing? Um, why can't we get uh, investment from this domestically? Uh, it, it would seem, I mean, certainly we've had Tim Pick's report, who I spoke to at um, All Energy last, last week, the offshore wind champion, talking a lot about, about Floating wind in particular is is quite a tricky market for startups and and certainly the, not necessarily the startups but you know there isn't that much interest from like clean tech funds either and it's just an, an interesting market to break into from the the, the private sector side um, and then we've obviously seen floating wind efforts in in Scotland and 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 things of that nature all being kind of sold off to overseas 
companies. I mean, flotation to TEPCO would be probably the analog there um, recently. So I think there's a question about domestic investment, but I mean, if we get caught up in that, I mean, perhaps losing sight of the fact that we're going to need all the investment we can get if we're going to get anything close, like uh, close to the targets that are being um, mooted for offshore wind in, in the very near term by 2030. And that's before you get into things like grid connection um, and and transmission, which is obviously another kind of existential issue there. But um, yeah, I guess, I guess great to see you all around. Yeah, I mean, it might be viewed as something of a cheap shot here for me, but... Nobody's stopping any Scottish companies investing in these facilities if they wanted to. And I would say it's perhaps an indictment of domestic companies that it takes a Japanese player to come over and lead the way. I mean, there's plenty of companies in Scotland, in Aberdeen, that make subsea cables or make something pretty close to them. Um, the kind of example that's always given is subsea risers uh, that hook up to, to, to gas, oil and gas platforms or, or FPSOs. So it's not like the expertise isn't here. There just seems to be a lack of or an unwillingness to to be the first one to take the plunge, which I, I'm sure they've all done their business models, but it would seem bizarre to me that there is that um, reluctance to do so given that there's... I mean, these projects are locked in given the scale of work that is going to come. I don't understand why there is not more willingness to try and do these projects. Maybe Sumitomo wouldn't have wouldn't have opened up or, or announced plans for these um, for the for this facility if there had been other domestic companies that had been ahead of them. Um, I think maybe going back to a point that was raised at the offshore wind conference back in January is that a lot of companies are looking for standardization in offshore wind. So they don't want to be making these facilities if the technology then changes in six or seven years time, which I can understand. But I, yeah, I, I just don't really understand why there is so, why people are moving so slowly when there is so much work to do. And also I don't think it potentially needs to either be a domestic company or a, or a, um, multinational company from overseas um, the kind of maybe one of the, the other take, takeaways from, from all energy is that the supply chain for offshore wind given the demands that are going to be upon it in a decade is nowhere near ready and it's going to take uh, concerted effort from all sides to get if, 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 if anyone is going to get close to hitting their offshore wind goals so I, th- I think it's kind of a case of the more the better at this stage rather than than, than perhaps cherry picking which companies and projects are, are going to be best because it's going to take a yeah Herculean effort to to get these turbines in the water. Yeah, well, indeed. It, well, it sounds like there's a follow-up somewhere in there, so let's see what we get. Um, but okay, thanks, Hamish. Uh, and with that, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. I'm off to go to the Kincardine Wind Farm. Did I tell you guys this? No, I, I told Ed, didn't tell Hamish. I'm off to the Kincardine Wind Farm later today, so I'm getting my seasick tablets. That's what I'm off to um, before we have that. So anyway... A lovely day boating. <laughs> a lovely day boating in the North Sea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I... I hope no fishing boats catch fire and you're diverted towards them either. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that happened. For for those that that aren't aware, uh, earlier this week, one of the, I believe one of the delegation boats earlier this week was um, diverted to assist, um, yeah, uh, a boat that had caught fire. Gosh. Um, So hopefully that doesn't happen, um, but let's see how we get on. Anyway, thanks to Ed and Hamish for joining me. Uh, We'll see you next time. I've been Alison Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com 
Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.